Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 18th, 2016. We have a winner for this year's worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And I'm surprised, but not surprised. But I am surprised, but not surprised. (laughs) Details in a little bit here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open our Bible and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, it's instead of. To see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says or if they're making stuff up, uh, twisting God's Word, teaching stuff that's never been heard in the history of Christianity before, things like that, uh, or generally teaching for shameful gain that the, th- the things that they ought not to be teaching. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. It's politically incorrect, does step on toes. We name names. We actually play sound bites from the people making these outrageous statements. And over and again, we discover that the, uh, the diet of doctrine being put forward in the mainstream of uh, American evangelicalism and evangelicalism as a whole, it ain't Christian. It ain't biblical doctrine. It's something completely different. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are falling for this stuff and think that what they're being fed is from the Bible when, in fact, they're having their itching ears scratched rather than them being taught the truth. So let's talk about what we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin by announcing the winner. That's right. We have a winner, folks. We have a winner of this year's 2016 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And I got to admit, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> I know I've been saying that, but, but I am surprised. But then again, I'm not surprised. So uh, we'll t- <laughs> I'll give you the details about that very shortly here, very, very shortly. Um, then we're going to do a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. We're going to be listening to Patricia King, and she's going to be talking about how we can be delivered from lack 
Um, something to get enthusiastic about, clearly. Then we're going to listen to Paula White's Easter Easter scam. Yeah, I know it's a little bit after Easter, but uh, this is a prime example of Easter scamage uh, by a money-grubbing televangelist. And uh, somewhere in there we'll take a break. And then to end off hour number one, we're going to begin... A, uh, a series of looks at, we're not going to do this every day, but we're going to begin a series of Rob Bell emergent church updates. Uh, he re- recently had the mystic Roman Catholic Richard Rohr on his uh, Robcast as they were discussing alternative orthodoxy, or alternative orthodoxy. And if you, in case you haven't already connected the dots, this is part of the reason why I played Last Friday, the uh, the sermon uh, lecture that we heard from Phil Johnson on the failures of fundamentalism. I think that, in fact, if you haven't yet listened to that lecture, you do need to listen to it before we begin our look at alternative orthodoxy. It'll, it'll help um, frame some things for you as we look at uh, what it is that Rob Bell and Richard Rohr are actually promoting it's not historic biblical Christianity. It's something completely different. And then in hour number two, we're going to review a, a, a sermon by Adrian Boykin and Kevin Andres from um, Kearney E. Free Church in Kearney, Nebraska, as we look at their sermon titled All In, and that's the sermon series, but their sermon on community, because this is uh, you know, all the rage in the seeker-driven movement. Uh, talking about community, but what's fascinating is is they're actually promoting a fascistic ideology rather than actually what the Bible teaches. Something to keep in mind there. If you haven't already heard my lecture that I I gave several years ago now called Resistance is Futile, You'll Be Assimilated by the Community, you need to listen to that also. We'll put some links up to this stuff today uh, with this episode of Fighting for the Faith. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, and since we're going to begin by announcing the winner of this year's 2016 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, well, we got to do this. That's right, folks. Eight contestants entered the ring. Only one emerged victorious. And by winning, the person actually is losing. Which is the reason why I'm surprised, but not surprised, by this year's winner. Yeah, that's right. Once a year, we hold the worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And we will announce the uh, bronze, silver, and gold medal winners for this not-coveted prize that we hand out once a year. And just so you know, what goes along with the winner, you know, with the person who wins, they will be sent a copy of Michael Horton's book titled Christless Christianity. And they will also be given, well, a letter from us explaining the the award that they have won. And they will also receive from us 30 pieces of pirate silver. Yeah, that's right. So let me go ahead and back off on our fanfare music as we get ready to announce the winner of this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And we'll begin with the bronze medalist. Yeah, that's the bronze medalist. That would be Todd Bentley. Todd Bentley came in third in this year's running of the uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I actually had picked him to be an early favorite, and I was a little surprised that he didn't actually take the prize. 
After that, silver medalist. Oh, man, this was close, by the way, folks. Very, very close. Silver medalist was Stephen Furtick. St- I know, I know, I, I know many of you are saying, but I vote. Yeah, I know. The vote was really close. In fact, the margin, the margin between the first, between our gold medalist, or should I say 30 pieces of silver medalist, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the guy who came in second, who would be Stephen Furtick, we're talking literally less than 12 votes. Less than 12. So, Without any further ado, the winner, the gold medalist, well, by 30 pieces of silver medalist, for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Are you ready? It is Ryan Miller. Ryan Miller of um, Branches Church in Mead, Washington, and his Easter sermon titled The Myth of Easter, where, kind of like in true Rob Bell emergent fashion, he spent a lot of time deconstructing whether or not Jesus actually bodily rose from the grave and spent a lot of time actually denying that, you know, that kind of stuff. So there it is, this year's winner of the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I mean, the guy who comes out of nowhere, the unknown guy, Ryan Miller of um, Branches Church in Meads, Washington. There you go. I know you guys were all just excited to hear that. I'm excited to let you know. And finally, we can put (laughs) this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest behind us and look forward to next year's moving along down at an english fair one evening i was there when i heard a showman shouting underneath the flare i've got a lovely bunch of coconuts there they are standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give him a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the chairman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball, sing and roll a bowl a ball a penny. Yeah, that's right, folks. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. That can mean only one thing. We're going to be doing a prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate update. Yeah, we're going to be listening to uh, one of the recent videos released by XP Media and uh, their <clears throat> matron leader. I'm not exactly sure what else to call her, Patricia King, uh, the self-proclaimed prophetess of. Well, nonsense. I think she's that. But uh, as she explains to us how we can be delivered from lack. Here is Patricia King. If you are suffering lack right now, yeah, I want you to get excited because deliverance is on its way for you. All right. Hang on a second here, folks. Did you hear that? You got to get excited because if you're suffering from lack, deliverance is on its way. So, woohoo! <laughs> Yay! All right. Deliverance from lack is coming. I'm so excited. Does, does that count? I have such a passion yeah. to see people set free from lack. And the yeah. reason why is because in the kingdom, there's only abundance. Jesus said... Right, in the kingdom, there's only abundance. So if you're suffering from lack, I mean, seriously, you're not really reaping the full benefits of the kingdom, right? Came that you would have life and have it in its abundance. Yeah, out of context, by the way, way out of context, uh, John 10.10 10, doesn't actually teach that Jesus wants you to 
um, not have lack and have an abundance, at least when it comes to, you know, your bank account and things like that. That's not what Jesus was talking about there. And I've, I've taught on this many times in depth and kind of walked, you know, walked through this. But the, the context, if you were apply the three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and, yeah, context, you have to start in the Gospel of John chapter 9, verse 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the full context there begins with the story of the man who was born blind mm-hmm. and the healing that Jesus gave him and how he Jesus healed him without the guy actually seeing Jesus, and then all the troubles that began as a result of that. And then as you get to the end of 9 into chapter 10, you have a discourse on the part of Jesus where he is literally taking the Pharisees. They These are the hirelings who've jumped the fence, who care nothing for Christ's sheep, and um and yeah and that's really where the context is and even though Jesus does say I came that they might have life and have it abundantly to the full the person who assumes that what Jesus is talking about there is money doesn't understand what Jesus is referring to so when you read it in context you'll see that that ain't what that passage is teaching at all and so kingdom life should be abundance of everything Abundance of friendships, abundance of anointing, abundance of joy, abundance of favor, abundance of finance. Start thinking yeah, abundance abundantly. of joy, of finance, of favor. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. If you're not experiencing all of that, well, then I, you know, I mean, how can you even be a Christian? And then, of course, the question that like logically comes up, well, like, wait a second. There are a lot of people who are Christians around the world. And if you've traveled the world, you're familiar with the fact that there are large swaths of geographical regions in which, well, people live in real poverty. And there are Christians who are living in real poverty. And if God, you know, well, is promising here abundance and wealth um, for people who are Christians, then why is it that so many hundreds of millions of Christians, and that's literally the figure, hundreds of millions of Christians live in poverty. I mean, if Christ came that they might have life and have it abundantly, then why isn't he giving them riches if that's what he's promising them? You see what I'm saying? This doesn't make any sense at all. As your... As your mind thinks, so are you. As your heart thinks, so are you. And so... Yeah, that's taking one of the Proverbs out of context and ripping it out out of what it means. The Bible does not teach, as as you think in your heart, so are you. That's not what the passage is saying. It's referring to, in that proverb, to a man who is stingy with his stuff. And it's basically saying, don't eat the, the, the food of stingy people. And there's a reason why, is because their heart isn't really with you. Read it in context, you'll see. I want to see you do right now is if you relate to a situation where you feel like you have lack, yeah. I want you to just almost imagine putting that lack under your feet and stomping on it. So we're going to go through a guided meditation here. We're going to... Imagine. We're going to use our imaginations to imagine that uh, lack is something that it will is tangible. 
you know, like grass or, you know, dog poo. And I'm going to stomp on it with my feet. Well, that'll solve all my problems. You know, that'll just bring lack to a grinding halt, you know. Because the devil is under your feet. Uh We have authority in Christ and all things are under his feet. Therefore, they're under our feet. Stomp on lack and start declaring the blessing of abundance. Yeah, have you stomped on lack today? And have you declared the blessing of abundance? I mean, if you're not, if you're experiencing lack right now and you haven't stomped on it, well, clearly you just don't understand what the Bible is teaching. But it's weird because the Bible doesn't teach this. Life that Jesus came to give you. It says in Philippians 4 19 that your God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Yeah, supply all my what? Need. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I seem to recall Jesus saying, when you pray, say, as part of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Uh huh. God does promise to meet our needs. Interesting here because she's talking about abundance, but the text she said is a promise from God that he will meet our needs. In the glory, there is so much abundance. Set your eyes, set your focus on the things above where Christ is seated. I'm going to... Yeah, to set your mind on things above is to set your mind on how loaded God is and how rich he is and how rich he's going to make you. That means what it means to set your mind on things. No, that's not what that text means. For you right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, I break the power of the curse of lack. Uh, <laughs> wow, there we go. Uh, we're we're all saved now. Patricia King has finally, once and for all, broken the the power of the curse of lack. You are all now free. I mean, she is wow, great authority here. You know. Command it to loose hold right now off of you in uh, Jesus' name. Yeah. And I ask, Lord, that you would open up the heavens over them through your mercy and pour out abundance. That they would begin to think abundance, handle abundance, expect abundance, believe in abundance. That their minds would be set on it in Jesus' name. Now, I have a number of tools I have to help you with. One of them is... Oh, I'm sure you do. I, I wonder how much they cost. A full seminar taught by myself and Robert Hodgkin. Uh-huh. A whole, I think it's four or five sessions yeah. called Attack on Lack. Yeah, I, I think that was your attack on your personal lack, though, because this Attack on Lack teaching will not actually give the people the abundance that you're promising them. You can get it on our online bookstore, Attack on Lack. It is amazing, and the word will set you free in that. Uh-huh. I also have a book called Step Into Supernatural Provision. Right. Step into. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're going to be stepping into it for sure. Not into supernatural provision, but you'll be stepping into it. And yeah, and you'll need to wipe it off of your shoes when you're done. And another book I want to um, highly recommend is God's Law of Attraction. <laughs> yeah. God's Law of Attraction. Right. Yeah, wow. So there you go. Patricia King shilling for herself there to make sure that she is attacking lack in her life by getting people to buy false doctrine in her books that teach false doctrine, all based upon creating in them, well, a greedy desire for uh, wealth and abundance. Yeah. And she's promised to give it to them, of course, if they apply the teachings that she has concocted in these books. 
Yet if scripture, if taught this, all you'd need is a Bible and um, and your days of lack would be over. Hmm. Weird, interesting, yeah, that we've uh, got this problem. All right, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update, which requires us to do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly With money you can make a splash There is nothing quite as wonderful as money Money, 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 money Nothing like a newly minted pound Money, 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 money. Everyone must anchor for the butchness of a banker It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase For it's money, money, money makes the world go round Money, 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 money that's right, and uh, oh boy, what we're going to listen to next is Paula White, and wow, all I can say is, I mean, if if this were a sermon, it could probably win the worst Easter sermon of the year contest, but because it's not, I mean, there was no way to actually put this into this year's running, but the teaching here is so blatantly, well... <laughs> Greedy on the part of Paula White is the best way I could put it. It's like she's looking at, looking at her bank account, going, you know, I really need to be able to put some, you know, I, I need some more money in my bank. I mean, I'm, I want to add that addition to my very nice pad and things like that, but I can't do that without getting some more, you know, money, 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 money. And so I know I'll twist God's word during Easter and see if I can convince people to send me a seed offering of $1,144. You think I'm making that up? Here's Paula White. To Paula today, I have a word from God for you. I'm sure you think you do, but you really don't. On March 27th, it's Easter Sunday. Yes. Better known to us as Christians as Resurrection Sunday. Uh, A.K.A. Easter. I believe this year that everything that the enemy has messed with, whether your family, your finances, whatever it is, your mind, your heart, your emotions. Has... The devil messed with your mind, heart, emotions, emotions, and finances. Uh-huh. God is going to release revelation, resurrection power to you. But- was she snapping? She was snapping. God's going to release, you know, resurrection thing, power something. or to, Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I have a word that you have to hear. And- uh, oh, I'm sure you think you do be obedient to the bible says oh i need to be obedient to the thing that god told you (laughs) yeah you didn't hear from god isaiah if you be willing and obedient you will eat the good of the land okay so as i begin to so isaiah prophesied about you so we need to be obedient to the word that god gave you so that we can be wealthy and prosperous in the land got it the word of God. Here's what's been brewing in my spirit. The God who came to give us resurrection life through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of John chapter 11. In verse 44, it says, the dead man came out. His John 11:44, The raising of Lazarus. Yeah, I'm familiar with that text. Yes, that Lazarus was in his tomb, had been dead for several days, and Jesus called him out of the tomb for sure. 
hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's in reference to Lazarus. Here's the prophetic word. Uh, Oh, here it comes. Are you ready? She's claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God. Quick, write this down and tack it onto the back of your Bible. I declare this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of life of Jesus Christ is going to flow through you. She's snapping. She did it again. Wow. There's a dead relationship, dead finances, a dead dream, that that thing is going to come out. It's going to come forth. Uh So Jesus, this Easter, is raising dead dreams? Yeah, I don't think so. This is a con. This woman is... um, Looking to, well, pad her bank account at your expense, of course. Hands, hands always represent power. So there are many different interpretations, five different Greek words for power. Hands literally and figuratively are power. So whatever the enemy is, bound your power up. And it says he was bound and wrapped also in his feet. Feet has to do with foundation. It has. You're allegorizing Lazarus's hands and feet. This is a historical narrative. Okay, you know, the story of the raising of Lazarus isn't type and shadow about power and your the foundation of your life. The story of Lazarus is not a parable about you. Do with direction. So whatever the enemy has bound your foundation, your direction with, whatever's been wrapped up, tied up by the enemy. And it says that he had a cloth around his face. When your face is wrapped, it's that you can't see. Has- you sure God told you this? Because, yeah, this would make God, well, a liar. Do with your purpose. It has to do with revelation. So I believe that that whatever the enemy is bound, your your direction, your foundation, your power, and your purpose with, that this Resurrection Sunday, because of life in Christ, it is going to come forth in the name of Jesus. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. And she keeps snapping. You know, like the well, you know, This is whew, manipulative beyond all reason. Let's get into the word because we understand that Christ died to give us life. According to John 10, 10, it says that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. Yeah, we just heard Patricia King twist this passage and now you're twisting it in quite the same way. That's one that is superior in quality. Resurrection literally means in the Webster, it's the rising again to life. The state of one being risen from the dead. Yeah, and you are aware that Lazarus was stone-cold dead. Jesus himself, stone-cold dead. And Jesus raised himself. It means to bring, to view, to attention, to use again. Uh, What? It means a standing up again. Just like Christ died in order to... To be resurrected. It was all about resurrection life. The joy of the cross was set before him. Why did he endure it? Because he knew that he would be crucified. He would be buried in a barred tomb. But that would not be the end of the story. That he would rise again on the third day. And through resurrection. To stand up again. He would bring life to all. Fulfilling the will of the father. That he would give us not only eternal life. But also life here on earth. And I love this scripture that the same spirit not just eternal life but also life here on earth you know so tap in now and you can like you know have this abundant life thing right now here on earth i mean 
What's the point of having a, a savior if, if all the benefits are for eternal life? We need to have, you know, health and wealth and prosperity now. Come on, Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. We'll come back and we'll finish up with Paula White, and you'll see for yourself. She is engaging in quite the scam. But uh, first, let's do this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Higher Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of Paula White's uh, Easter scam and then an extended Rob Bell alternative orthodoxy update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, oh, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hearty, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, yo ho. Presents Church Day Select. God's word I put on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen The Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. It twists God's word it puts on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen The Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He's a heretic and he's okay. He schemes all night and he lies all day. God's word, I take your tithes and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. Twist God's word, he takes your tithes and spends it on private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. He's a heretic, he's okay. He's all night and he all day. God's word, I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well. He twists God's word, he writes bad books that will land us all in hell.
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that televangelists are just out for your money and that they're not actually teaching you the truth of what God's Word says. There's a reason for that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. They're right all over the homepage right there. And uh, one says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you pick. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey with a commitment of $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us and help us to keep doing what we're doing by exposing the false teaching and the exploitations of many of the people out there in the body of Christ or at least the visible body of Christ. I don't think these people are Christians. Many of them are not. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're going to continue now with our... 
uh, Paula White update as she is um, engaging in an Easter scam, if you would, twisting God's word, allegorizing the story of the raising of Lazarus, as allegorizing his hands, his feet, the fact that his face was covered in all of this supposedly has significance. It's a parable about you, and you better obey because God has given her a direct revelation, and you want to have abundance in your life, don't you? Well, you got to obey the revelation that God gave to Paula White. We continue. That raised Christ from the dead now dwells and lives on the inside of you, which means you have the ability through instruction, through obedience, through understanding, through revelation to stand up again. I don't know what the enemy is like. You have the power to stand up again through revelation. And she's talking about raising dead dreams and stuff. Yeah. I don't know what's causing you to sit down, but prophetically, I have a word for you. Okay, I'm ready. What's your prophetic word? This Easter, yeah. this Resurrection Sunday, yeah. you are going to stand up. Your relationships are going to... I'm going to stand up. My relationships are going to stand up? What? Stand up again. Your finances are going to stand up. Your uh-huh. my, my finances are about to stand up. Health is going to stand up. You're saying, oh, Pastor Paula, can God really... Yeah, no, I would never say Pastor Paula, at least didn't mean it, because God's word makes it clear women actually can't be pastors. Isn't that strange, yeah? Do that? Absolutely. I can share testimony after testimony after testimony. Through the power of Jesus Christ, through what he finished on the cross, Mm -hmm. it gives you the ability to rise up again. I don't care how far down you've been. Yeah, isn't the resurrection that's promised in Scripture for those of us who are Christians an actual bodily resurrection on the last day? I don't seem to recall any passages of Scripture that that promise that God's going to resurrect my dead dreams. Yeah, I'm not, I've never seen that text. It's me of King David, and there's nothing left but ashes. Yeah. But God says, I'm going to take these ashes, and I'm going to bring forth great beauty. And he brings forth the kingdom. He builds the temple, ultimately Solomon does. But he builds out of the ashes of David something beautiful that would not just have legacy for like a hundred years, no. but would ultimately bring forth the Messiah that would bring forth you and I. When we get into resurrection life and power, resurrection, the law of it is that... The law of resurrection? There's a law associated with resurrection? Who knew? I, I had no idea. I mean, I don't recall any biblical text teaching about the law of resurrection. Hmm. You will recover. Resurrection is whatever you had lost will be recovered again. The loss of your time. You will be thoroughly healed. God is... So all the years I've wasted my time listening to people like you, Paula, resurrection power is going to give me all that time back? No way! I'm so glad there's a payoff at the end of all of this. Because... You know, exposing your false teachings, wow, it has been a rough ho- road to hoe, you know. God, who is going to bring resurrection life to you. So when Jesus cries out on Calvary and he says, it is finished, yeah. the word means to do something perfectly. You could translate it as perfectly perfect or as completely complete. So when- <laughs> what? Jesus said, it is finished. He's saying it's perfectly perfect and it is completely complete. Yeah, his work on the cross, lady, that's what he was referring to. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing missing. The atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross is perfect in every aspect and perfect in every respect. Second Peter. Right. To save us. 
1 verse 3 says, according as his divine power had given unto us all things that pertain to life. So I want you to think about that. What do you need pertaining to your life? Is it Um, forgiveness of my sins? Your Boaz? Is it finances? Is it my Boaz? Um, Yeah, I didn't know I had a Boaz. Direction? Is it being connected to the right people? Whatever it is, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. Everything you'll ever need in time and eternity, whether spiritual or physical, emotional or relational, whatever it is, has been provided by that one sacrifice. It is finished. Oh, indeed it is. But yeah, you're you're applying Christ's finished work in quite a strange way. When he cried out, he knew that he would be resurrected on the third day. He there would... she goes again. She's snapping again. Yes, snappy. Yeah, cries again. So that's where hope comes in. Yeah, that, that when Christ rose, it was the same saying to you that if I have the ability to rise, because the same Spirit that was in Christ that rose him from the dead is now in you. Yeah. Whatever is dead in your life has the ability to rise. Yeah, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. You're just making this up, and God did not tell you this. To come back again. So when he said it's perfectly perfect and completely complete, Calvary not only did a work in us, but it did a work for us. And this is what is important to you prophetically. Okay. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Yeah, let's do that. 10. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, which in time past you were not a people, but now you are a people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. It goes on. I like the message version. It's oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah, because the message version makes it so much easier for you to twist and mangle God's word because it's like done all the pre-twisting for you. Yeah. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Listen carefully. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instrument to do his work and to speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you Mm. from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Oh, man, it's like the... Disney movie, Hercules, from zero to hero. Oh, wow, that's just amazing. Resurrection power has taken me from being a zero to being a hero, from being nothing to being something. Oh, I am so amazing. Because it is perfectly perfect and it is completely complete, I don't care what your nothing looks like. He says, I don't. You don't care what my nothing looks like? (laughs) (sighs) Ah. Love you. I'm going to divorce you. You've been a single and alone for 13 years, two months, three days. You don't have two pennies to rub together. God says because of what Christ did, you go from nothing to something. Now, faith is going to have to be activated. And I'm going to continue. Oh, so we're going to have to activate faith. Yeah. See, yeah, God wants to take you from nothing to something. But, yeah, you forgot that important faith activation step. Oh, okay to share this message with you right but he goes he says you go from rejected to accepted Uh you see let me lay the foundation that from the very beginning god desired to have an intimate relationship with you Uh, okay 
One that he would be your God 24-7. Yeah, and what does this have to do with me sending you money, by the way, with she's leading up to this? That, that he would walk with you, talk with you, that he would tabernacle with you. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 1 through 9, he lays it out, basically the plan of salvation to Moses. And he says in verse 8, let them make a sanctuary for me, which means a holy place, a consecrated thing that I may dwell with them. So God's original intention is his final decision. Mm-hmm. It's always been God's desire to take up permanent residence with you, not to just have a Sunday experience. Right, right. So that's why I should send you money. Not just to visit when you're in trouble, not to be there when you cry upon him on just a, on a Monday or a Wednesday, but a 24-7 day. I feel like this is like a theological smokescreen that you're laying down here. Every single month, all-time, full-time God. So it means if you're in the low valley, if you're on the high mountaintop, God wants to have residence with you. His desire has always been to tabernacle. It means to booth, to hut, to house. It's from the idea of intertwining or fencing in. Uh So God wants to be intertwining. Right, yeah. It means uh, as in to fence in as a screen or a defense. It means to join together through weaving. So in other words, God says, I want to be an intricate part of your life. Yeah, here's what's on the screen. You can't see it. Let me read it to you. So your resurrection seed of $1,144 for John 11.44. When you sow your sacrificial resurrection seed in faith, we will rush you a cloth that has been anointed and prayed over. Mm-hmm. This is what's coming. So that we are so woven together, yeah. you can't tell the different threads. Right. If I were to pull up this pillow right now, I couldn't tell where one thread ends and another begins because it's so interwoven. It's fabricated. And God says, yeah, like this doctrine of yours, it's totally fabricated. It's not in the Bible. I want to be so fabricated into your life that when they see you, they see me. That that every aspect of your life, your relationships, your finances, your purpose, your destiny. My finances, my purpose, my destiny, Uh my density. Got it. Yeah. Your health in everything, your children, Mm -hmm. everything about you shows the intertwining of God. Right. I mean, do your finances show you've been intertwined with God? Yeah. See, God ultimately wants to show off in your life. Oh, I see. God wants to show off. Oh, I had no idea. It's perfectly perfect, and it is completely complete. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come right back, and I'm going to give you a very prophetic instruction. I'm going to continue to teach you on what the work of the cross did for you. Because it's not that we, it, it's not so much we reject salvation. We don't deny Jesus. We right. just neglect it. Oh, yeah. So we're neglecting salvation. Right? Don't take the full package of what has been done for us. Right. Yeah. God has done his part. The question will be, will you do your part? Okay, so I need to do my part. What's my part? Uh, I get the feeling I'm going to find out. So what is my part? Everything you ever need has been provided by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A right. price was paid because of God's love for you. Okay. 
Then the miraculous happened. A resurrection. God is not dead, but alive. And your purpose, health, family, finances, whatever the enemy is attempting to destroy, is not dead, but it is alive. It is resurrected. Call the toll-free number. Write the P.O. Box. Or go online immediately. A resurrection seed is going to unlock something powerful. Someone... A resurrection seed is going to unlock something powerful. Really? In desperate need of a miracle resurrection. Someone is to sow a resurrection seed of $1,144. For- uh, <laughs> what? John 11.44. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. If you- so because it's John 11.44, someone's supposed to send Paula White 1144 bucks. Not so that amount, so $144 or $44 or even so $11. When you sow your sacrificial resurrection seed in faith, we must get to you immediately a cloth that has been anointed and prayed over. This is a point of contact from Paula to you in faith. <laughs> really? An anointed prayer cloth? <laughs> God's word shows us in Acts 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So yeah, that would be through Paul, not through the false pastor prophetess uh, um, Paula White. I mean, she claims to be a pastor, and God's word forbids this. There's no way God's speaking to her. You know what I mean? Even handkerchiefs and aprons that have been touched by him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. We are standing in faith with you that your Lazarus will come forth by resurrection power and. And my Lazarus will come forth. Yeah, I mean, so there's my dead dream. That's my Lazarus. And by sowing a seed in faith to Paula White Ministries for 1144 bucks, my Lazarus will come walking out of his tomb. <laughs> oh, the sad part is there were people who sent her money because of this. Whose grave clothes will be removed and destroyed as you place God's anointed cloth on your dead situation. Call... Place God's anointed cloth on my dead situation. Oh, man. Write or go online today. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, Paula White's resurrection restoration sender, $1,144, you know, because of John eleven forty four, And God, she'll send you an anointed prayer cloth and you can... Put it on your dead dream or put it on something that's dead in your life and God will bring your Lazarus forth quite alive. I mean, yeah, no, actually, you send Paula White $1,144, you know what will happen? You will be out $1,144 and she she will have those dollars and you will no longer have them because God didn't tell her none of this stuff. It's just complete gobbledygook and nonsense all designed to, well, this is what an example of perfectly of teaching for shameful gain the things that ought not to be taught, which the Bible warns about, by the way. Moving along, time for an emergent church update. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by uh, Doug Paget. Setting, sitting in this afternoon on French horn over there is Rob Bell and Richard Rohr. Yeah, special appearance, by the way. Now, as you can tell, this orchestra has 
totally abandoned the modernist definitions of notes, and now they're just being led by their experience and by the spirit itself. This is their rendition of uh, Strauss's also Sprock's Zarathustra. This is very cutting-edge stuff here, very avant-garde. Hey, listen to this crescendo coming up in the music here. This is amazing! There you go. I mean, there's nothing more cutting edge than that. Now, what we're going to be listening to, this is part one of a multi-part segment that we're going to be putting together over the next, uh, I'd say, couple of weeks. Probably a good way to put it. We'll do this like every few days or so. Uh, of uh, Rob Bell and his discussion with uh, Richard Rohr, whom he invited over to his uh, Southern California bungalow where, where he, you know, he's, that's his headquarters for surfing and stuff like that now. And uh, he invited Richard Rohr onto the Robcast, and they are discussing the uh, seven points of alternative orthodoxy. And today we're going to be hearing their views, uh, well, their contentions against sola scriptura, you know. So, you know, what is it that we are to believe, teach, and confess as Christians? How do we make disciples? Well, you know... Um, <laughs> we'll have to let uh, Rob Bell and Richard Rohr explain. Here's Rob Bell and his conversation with Richard Rohr on this first of many topics we'll talk about regarding their alternative orthodoxy. Here we go. You all know and love Richard Rohr, but if you aren't, Richard Rohr has shaped my work as much as anybody. For many of us, he has put language to what we felt deepest in our bones. I know for Kristen and I, He's our, he's the original village elder for us. Oh, you make um, me so happy. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't even know. He has all sorts of books. Everything Belongs was the first one I read. Oh, but was it? Then oh. The Naked Now, and you have The Immortal Diamond. And folks, after you hear him, you're going to want to go get his books, and you're going to start <laughs> wondering it. which one is the one I should start <laughs> with. And I'm telling you, <clears throat> just start somewhere. I am <laughs> humbled by your trust. Thank you. So Thank you. when I was thinking of... <clears throat> What should we talk about? Because I knew we could just turn it on and start talking and we'd be fine. But um, I was telling Richard before we turned turned the recording on, Richard came up with these seven themes of an alternative alternative orthodoxy. And I think I came across these when when you and I did an event together in New Mexico uh, in 2014. Okay, that would make sense because our conspirers – conferences are going through those seven themes. Yes. Yeah. And – I know for many of you who listen, uh, whether you grew up religious or not, you know what you don't want to be a part of, but you also know that there's some sort of sacred hum within you. Mm. Or the many people I know who There's a sacred hum inside of me? Mm. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, Rob Bell is part pantheist or panentheist. Say, the Jesus worldview they were handed doesn't work, but they find... Jesus more compelling than ever. Yes. yes. And uh, Richard created these seven themes of an alternative orthodoxy. Now, that's an important statement. Richard Rohr created. Uh-huh. Yeah, this, you got to think about it this way, okay? Christianity is a historical religion. It's a revealed religion. And within the pages of the New Testament, we learn that as Christians, we have the faith 
once for all delivered to the saints, right? So here we are in the year 2016, right? And in the year 2016, along comes Richard Rohr. Mm -hmm. And Richard Rohr, he's created, get this, alternative orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Right. And here's the problem, that for 2,000 years, Christianity well, hasn't believed, taught, and confessed alternative orthodoxy. Nope. Um, Instead, Christianity has taught biblical orthodoxy. So, I mean, how much do you want to bet that, um, that as well as gifted as a communicator as Richard Rohr is, and as compelling as uh, Rob Bell's inner hum thing might be to you, that this isn't Christianity? Because who invented alternative orthodoxy? Answer, Richard Rohr. So why on earth should I listen to Richard Rohr rather than to Jesus and to his apostles? That's right. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Catholic means universal, not Roman Catholic, but universal. It's for every person, all time, everywhere, every nation, right? And it's apostolic. That is, we believe in the apostolic teaching. Jesus didn't write anything down. Instead, he left the writing down of his teaching and his deeds to his apostles, who were the eyewitnesses to his life, teaching, death, and resurrection. So the apostolic faith is the one that teaches what the apostles taught. Richard Rohr comes along and he has alternative orthodoxy. Why should I be listening to that? Which to me are the best naming of what it does look like mm. to be alive and to have a path mm. and uh, even to have a Jesus-centered mm -hmm. path. Mm -hmm. And especially everywhere I go, I know like you, people, they know what they're leaving, but what exactly are they headed yes. into? And then especially so cool. people who they grew up with something that doesn't work for them anymore, but they're trying to figure out what to hand their kids. It's something that doesn't work for them anymore. Maybe this is legalistic Christianity. I mean, yeah, evangelicalism stopped working for me for, you know, you know, a long, long time ago. But I still am a Christian. I'm more orthodox now than I was then. So it wasn't orthodoxy that let me down. It was false teaching and a wrong understanding of law and gospel. So uh, this episode of the Robcast is for all of you who are like, what do you hand your kids? I'm telling you. How about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? Oh, wait, that's not what you're going to be teaching. This is some of the best stuff ever. So these, these seven themes, and we're going to go through them. And Richard is going to interact with them, and this is going to be so much fun. And yes, we will talk about Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not more than necessary, I hope. <laughs> okay, so the first one you call methodology, yep. and, it's, and, and as it's written, they're each one sentence, essentially. Yes. And the sentence is, Scripture, as validated by experience, and experience, as validated by tradition, are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's kind of get this out on the table, all right? So if you haven't heard my lecture on Sola Scriptura that I gave in Norway, I think you might need to listen to that. 
But he, he, real quick, the Bible actually teaches sola scriptura, all right? Um, first of all, Jesus went in the Great Commission, tells his disciples to go you know, into all the world, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded. This is what Jesus said. There's a very specific body of teaching that the disciples are to teach, and it's that which Christ has taught. So here's my question. Where can I go today to find and to hear the teachings of Jesus? Answer, there's only one place I can go. That is the written word of God, Old and New Testament. Jesus is God in human flesh. And so because of that, the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus said are God's words, well, I can say those are words of Jesus by virtue of the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. So I can go there. I can go to the apostolic New Testament and find the teachings of the apostles, which also contain the words and teaching of Jesus. Anywhere else? Yeah, no. Nah, that, no, no, it does, that doesn't exist. There is no other place I can go. No, literally, no other place. So, so the Bible, via the Great Commission, teaches sola scriptura. Not only that, the, the Bible itself, in those scriptures, we see Jesus attacking those who would teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Mark chapter 7 comes to mind here. The Pharisees who had a, a so-called oral tradition that they were binding men's consciences to, Jesus trashes the whole thing and says, and basically rebukes them soundly for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus himself was a sola scriptura guy. And then you think of the Apostle Paul admonishing young Pastor Timothy. Yeah, he admonished him to preach the word and admonished him that all Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is no good work that God is going to call you to that requires you to rely on Scripture as validated by experience, as validated by tradition. Yeah, that's not at all. So these guys are explicitly teaching against what the Scripture teaches, you know, what Jesus himself commanded the church to teach his teachings. We continue. Okay, let me try it. I'll just say a few things about it. You know, I I wrote these as sort of the... Uh, the ideas that would form the curriculum of our living school. And so I had to make clear at the very beginning to the students what's going to be our approach to methodology. Yes. What weight do we give to Scripture? What weight do we give to experience? And what weight do we give to... Tra- I don't give any weight to experience or tradition. Tradition. Now, tradition is useful. If by tradition you mean you could look and see how has the church understood these biblical texts? How have they understood them? And that's going to require you to read the church fathers critically because the church fathers are humans and they are capable of mistakes and they made many of them. And we had to move beyond the old Catholic Protestant thing that we were the tradition people and Protestants were the scripture people, which is really uh, the typical dualistic food fight. It doesn't get you anywhere. Dualistic food fight. By the way, this is a fascinating thing. Both... Rob Bell and Richard Rohr are mystics, which means they believe in monism. Uh-huh. Look it up. They are coming from a monistic worldview. 
they are very much against these these somehow dualisms that exist in you know in orthodoxy versus heresy things like that that's a dualism they're monists everything is one and you are one with god because it's only half true, you know? <laughs> yes, all of the sola scriptura. It's just the Bible alone. Where did you come up with that? Well, we came up with that. Oh, okay, so. Yeah, actually, I came up with that because the Bible teaches it. If you read it, you'd find it. There's experience. There were some other things in play. <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing that you got to state the obvious? But it's, we, we're calling it the tricycle that we ride on when I first teach the students. And the shocking thing, I hope it won't be shocking for you, is I really say the front wheel is experience. Okay, so they teach a tricycle when it comes to um, definitive words from God. Experience is the front wheel of the tricycle. Mm -hmm. Because I think it wins out anyway, even though we yes. don't admit it. We don't admit it. Right. Your cultural, personal experience of how you receive reality is going to determine what you pay attention to in Scripture and what you don't pay attention to and what you pay attention to. in the Now, this is partly true, and uh, C.S. Lewis actually notes this. There is a... Uh, uh, you can find it online. It's an article written by C.S. Lewis, which was actually the introduction to uh, a uh, 1940s, late 40s, early 50s translation of Athanasius's uh, uh, book on the Incarnation. And in that introduction to that translation of Athanasius's on the Incarnation, C.S. Lewis was asked to write the intro, and the intro was titled "On the Reading of Old Books." Okay which is important, and I'll tell you why it's important, because what Richard Rohr here is talking about um, as far as experience is is that your cultural worldview that you grow up in is an assumed epistemology, and it's an assumed epistemology and one that is difficult to see. It's so difficult, it's like a fish seeing the water that it's swimming in, okay? And it ends up having an impact on how you understand scripture. And as a result of it, you're the cult, your cultural lens can actually distort the meaning of scripture. No, no one, nobody denies this is true unless you're just like, you know, just a rube. But here's the idea is that this is C.S. Lewis noted this particular thing. And he wrote this essay on the reading of old books, why it's important for you to read books outside of Western civilization, out of the current political climate that you're in. Stop reading books that were only written over the last five years. Read the Church Fathers. Read the Reformers. Read books from other eras. And the reason for this is simple is because the cultural assumptions are different on the part of everybody who's writing in these different eras and different times and different places. And that is going to help you to see the lens by which you are operating so that you can stop distorting Scripture according to your cultural lens. An important uh, thing for us to be able to do here. So what they're talking about here is a legitimate thing that exists. The problem is that our cultural lenses do not teach us to rightly understand God's Word Oftentimes, our cultural lenses distort God's word and subvert its true meaning. 
But listen to the way they're talking about it. It's now the third wheel in our tricycle. And, well, everybody's got this. Everybody does this. So let's just make that part of our, our you know, the, the authority by which we conduct our spirituality, to which we say, the tradition of what you call bad tradition so you got to reveal this bias that we're all operating with and it seems god is willing to work with it how else could god work except he's got to work seems that god's willing to work with your cultural biases how else could he work you know so it's a good thing not a bad thing but you need to know it it's there yeah okay work through our experience so by you know the law of three is a dynamic law. Things keep moving. Any dualistic opposition is inherently a dead end. Really? And where in Scripture does it say that a dualistic opposition is inherently a dead end? You see, because Jesus is light. He came into the darkness. That's a dualism, is it not? Jesus is good. Men were evil. That's a dualism, is it not? So the scriptures talk in dualistic ways, light and darkness, good, evil, bad and good, things like that. I mean, so where do you get this idea that somehow dualisms are inherently wrong or off the mark or whatever? And notice the legalism by which he's setting this up, which, by the way, is a dualism in and of itself. The person who says dualisms are inherently evil are actually engaging in and utilizing a dualism. Because it just goes back and forth. Back and back forth, and, back and forever, forth. Forever, forever, you know. And you think because you yell louder or with greater authority, it's going to settle it. So uh, this has worked very well for us to really honor the scriptures, which for me as a Catholic is my real education. My love is the scripture. I think that's why some evangelicals trust me because they know that I don't take the scriptures lightly. Uh, But I'm also a Catholic. And in that I recognize that there's a perennial tradition of interpretation beginning with the desert fathers and mothers, what we call the fathers of the church, the councils of the church, the, um, the saints. And why would you start with the desert fathers? That's an interesting place to start. By the way, Richard Rohr is a mystic. The Desert Fathers were monastic mystics. Yeah, so um, so he starts his tradition of interpretation going to the, well, the Desert Fathers, which they appear post-Council of Nicaea, uh-huh, fourth century. Fourth century. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh Uh-huh. So we're just going to ignore pre-Constantinian interpretation of Scripture and favor instead the church father, uh, the uh, the desert fathers and desert mothers who were mystics? Yeah, I don't think so. And mystics of 2,000 years. And if, if you never find anything like your recent religious experience, validated in either Scripture or the tradition of those who tried to follow the Scriptures, I think you have a good reason to question it. Yes. Because uh, the Spirit is one, as Ephesians says. uh, Yeah, notice the emphasis on the monism. The Spirit is one. This is monism. uh, And you're not going to find yourself... Uh, out on left field, you know, or right field, for that matter. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I've often, when people say, like, how do you know you're not way off in the deep weeds, mm-hmm. totally astray, whatever language people use, you've totally lost the plot. Uh, I often, my first thought is, because there's thousands of years of people saying a similar True. thing. The thing, Yeah, but only in a, in a particular wing, the mystical wing. This is mysticism, and it doesn't show up in any kind of form until we get into the fourth century. The thing that I just said may sound new to you, That's but right. I'm aware that That's I'm right. just putting perhaps That's... different metaphors yeah. or modern language. It was brand new in the fourth century, which should tell you something. Language on something that people have spoken yes. of. Yes. How could I trust that I'm right? Unless that's true. You know, yeah. who am I to assume that I, who came out of Kansas, of all places, <laughs> that I I would know the big picture, but I'm standing on the shoulders of saints and mystics and holy people who've gone ahead of me. Saints and mystics and holy people. Not the apostolic record, not the Old Testament, the prophet's and the apostles, no, we're going to rest on the shoulders of the mystics that came along in the 4th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really shaky foundation to me. Right. Who've struggled with the same scriptures. And I've, I've thought recently the awareness in American culture that, that, that Wall Street and the financial industry has had extraordinary exponential profit for a few while so many people are struggling just to put food on the table that goes all the way back to the hebrew prophets yep there you go we have we have thousands of years that when you say when you shake your fist and say this system profits a few at the top and oppresses a number or keeps other people out of yeah i don't seem to recall isaiah or jeremiah um you know railing against capitalism Mm mm-hmm I do recall the prophets railing against those who hoarded their wealth and would not help their neighbors. There's a difference. Out of the game. We're just in the tradition. Yes, that is actually a very traditional statement. That's right. Or uh, John Philip Newell, I recently had a conversation with him for the podcast, and he was talking about how second century Celtic spirituality um, began with an affirmation of the divine feminine, the sacred feminine. And yeah, you know, Celtic spiritualities, the divine feminine. And an awareness that the good good resides within people and a proper relationship with the soil. Wow. And we were laughing about how those are considered very progressive, yeah, progressive ideas today. that were second century. To, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Celtic mystics. Yeah, we're we're talking about paganism here, and these guys are getting they're going, ooh, ah, yeah, <laughs> the flat out attack against the faith once delivered to the saints, a denial of the Catholic Apostolic Church. Wow. So there we go. Yeah, I mean, we've got you know we're standing on the shoulders of you know. Mystics that showed up in the fourth century. You know, this, this goes way back. Yeah, the problem is it doesn't go all the way back, does it? You want to go all the way back, you have to go back to scripture. Wow. So there you go. That's kind of installment one. And as you can tell, 
this conversation with Richard Rohr is um, just going to be absolutely abysmal is the best way I can put it. I mean, what they're promoting isn't orthodoxy. It's an alternative orthodoxy, which is an orthodoxy which ultimately loses the message of the cross and cannot save you. Calling it alternative orthodoxy is polite. Let's call this what it really is, heresy. That's what it is. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon about community that twists God's word and teaches an ideology. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website. You'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. for the faith. We're well into it. Since we spent so much time doing emergent mysticism, I thought we'd do something that's into the postmodern Druckerite theme. But let's do this right. 
good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service days. Sermon? Comes to us via Kearney E. Free Church in Kearney, Nebraska. Adrian Boinken and Kevin Andres uh, presiding. The name of the sermon series is All In. The name of the sermon we're listening to is titled Community. This is a mess, is the best way I can put it. In the additional resources with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, there will be a link to a lecture I gave several years ago titled Resistance is Futile. You will be assimilated into the community. Yeah, the solution to rugged individualism, which, by the way, is an error, is not the opposite error, which historically has a name, and that name is fascism. Yeah, it's the denial of the existence of the individual, only the community. And uh, these guys are, well, they're not overtly teaching it, but man, they are flirting with it. That's the best way I can put it. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Andre Boykin and uh, the community sermon. Here we go. Well, good morning. Morning. So good to be with you today. Very grateful for Jean Heiser sharing a bit of her story with prayer and ministry leadership. Jean's a, a great leader here in our church, and uh, we're very thankful for the ministry of prayer that has upheld this church across so many decades. And as we noted in that video, one small additional ministry of prayer that we've begun is the simple prayer partner ministry. You can always identify prayer partners on Sunday mornings through this little badge that they're wearing up here, a man or a woman though, that you can come and ask prayers for in confidence, well, whatever the reason might be on any Sunday morning. You know, we wanted to include that video today because uh, praying together is a piece of community together. And today's focus will be on community. Uh, that's our core value that we're talking about. And I can just share that in the first six months that I've been here, uh, one of the sweetest times for me, amongst the sweetest times for me, has been just gathering up at the front of this auditorium with people who have come up to introduce themselves and maybe share a bit of their family story and uh, pray for me and then have an opportunity to pray for them. And community happens that way as we love one another through the instrument of prayer. And so know that's always available to you on Sunday mornings. Well, my name is Adrian, and uh, this is Kevin, and we're two of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do what's called tag team preaching. I like it. <laughs> and uh, we're going to go back and forth as we talk about this core value of community because Kevin leads uh, overflow ministry to our call. What is this core value of community you're talking about? Since when do churches, individual community, faith communities, have the right to create their own unique core values? That's weird. Which, by the way, is part of fascism. Mm -hmm. You need to listen to my lecture. College students, and he leads our life group ministry, uh, which is the key instrument through which we have community here. And I really believe in this core value deeply, and so I want to speak into it as well. But I'm going to ask Kevin to kind of kick it off for us this morning, and we'll just kind of go back and forth in a little conversation talking about this core value of community today. Good. Thanks, Adrian. So how many of you like to grill? Let's go ahead and raise your hand if you like to grill. That's a lot of us, absolutely. 
My wife and I, we love to grill. And, but what I really like about grilling is this, the smell or the aroma that, that comes from doing that. Anybody with me on that? Now, just a note here. I, I kind of mentioned it. Let me kind of tease it out a little bit. Fascism teaches that morals, values, do not rise above a community. Okay, so the German community, yeah, the uh, the German Volk people, the community, they had their own values. Mm-hmm. Americans, that's a community. They have their own values, and the highest level in a well, the the the, the greatest entity in any in the world is a community, not an individual. It's a community, and individual communities have the right to choose their own values. Hence, we've got this idea here that apparently uh, the the community there at Kearney E. Free Church in uh, Kearney, Nebraska, they have their own unique values. Huh. That's bizarre, like I said. Is that, is that what you like to do? I mean, that's just an incredible part of, of grilling. And lately, my wife and I, we've moved away from the gas grill and we've moved to um, that good old-fashioned charcoal-type grilling. And it's, for whatever reason, it just seems like that that just tastes better. It's a lot of work. It, it is a lot of work. <laughs> hey, be quiet. But it just tastes better. It just just tastes better. But with that, right, as you noted, it does take a bit more work. And I had to learn how, how that needed to happen. And so, you know, you take your charcoal and you light it and then you have to wait. You have to be patient and you have to wait until the flames die down and then the charcoal begins to become white hot and then you uh, spread that out evenly and then you're ready to go. And it's, I don't know about you, but I find myself at times mesmerized by what happens in that grilling experience and just watching that flame die down and watching those uh, coals become white hot, building off of each other, and producing um, and really accomplishing their purpose of producing an incredible, beautiful grilling experience for my wife and I. Uh, amen to that. Yeah, that's, that's just a lot of fun. So yeah, uh, let's let's find eternal truths from the experience of grilling with charcoal rather than gas, because everybody knows. I mean, that's how you derive Christian doctrine, right? Let's just say that after church today, that my wife and I would decide to go grill, and I would um, prepare the charcoals, and I would watch, and you know, it's just at that right moment where it's ready to grill, and they're spread out, and my wife brings out her fish and anything but fish for me, and and then what I would do right before we would put the meat on the grill, I would take the grate off and I would, with my tongs, would take one single piece of charcoal and I would move it over to this container and I would put that piece of charcoal in the container and I would put a grate over it and I would say, Janet, this is your grill to cook your fish so that the smell doesn't get on my steak on this grill over here. And first of all, my wife would go, what? No, that's not going to happen, Kevin. Secondly, my daughter, she would take out her phone and it would go on Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook, hashtag dad's crazy. And you would all say, that's not very nice, Kevin. And you're right. That isn't very nice. And why is that? It's because we know that a single piece of charcoal 
is going to get cold rather quickly and it's not going to provide enough heat to sufficiently cook her fish. And, and, what I, and what I'm saying to you about this is that it reminded me of a verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, where the writer says that we need each other. And you can read along on the screen, but he says that we're to stir up one another to love and to good works. And we are not to neglect meeting one another. And so he knew that if... Yeah, we're not to neglect the gathering of the saints. This is talking about church. If we were to be off on the side, if we were to be by ourselves, that we would cool off rather quickly in our walk with Christ. And so we need community. We need our brothers and sisters, which then lead. We need community. By the way, I'm not an advocate for rugged individualism, but what are you doing here? That text isn't about community. It's about the gathering of the church around the word and the Lord's Supper. It leads us to this big idea that we're talking about this morning, and that is that individualism is the way of the culture, but community is the way of Christ. Um, yeah, see, the thing is, is that individualism and communitarianism are both ideologies that are antithetical to Scripture. Hmm. Individualism is the way of the culture, but community is the way of Christ. Janet, would Kevin do that to you, actually? (laughs) (laughs) I I hope you, I really hope he wouldn't. Okay, move along. Move along, okay. It's a good little word picture there that much in the same way that a single coal can't uh, cook a piece of meat by itself. It needs other coals. It needs one another. So also we need each other to get warm spiritually, don't we? In fact, we need each other to stay hot spiritually. This is written into the very fiber of how God has made us. It's written into our very DNA It's woven into the way God has formed us as his people. Okay, notice here, he's attributing to the community the works of the Holy Spirit. Scripture doesn't teach this. What is he doing? And uh, Hebrews 10.25, by the way, was the passage that uh, he misquoted. Let me read it in context. Our three rules for a sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. Hebrews 10, starting at 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, and not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's no problem in saying that gathering together, we help stir one another up to love and to good works. That is part of the job of the body of Christ. And the not neglecting to meet together has nothing to do with community. It has to do with the gathering of the church. 
So what's going on here is a twisting of God's word and an interpretation of scripture that is running the Bible through the lens of a communitarian, which, by the way, is called fascism, a communitarian ideology. We continue. That we would be found in community. Think about this, Father, from the way that God created you and me, he created us for community. You might remember back in Genesis 1. No scripture actually says that. 1, verses 26 and 27, I'll read these two verses. That as God has created the, the heavens and the earth, and then he forms man and woman. And this is what he says in verse 26. Let us. Yeah, watch what he's going to do here. Us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them both. Now notice what he's doing. He's taking the fact that God is a trinity. There is one God, three persons. And he's going to interpret that through a communitarian lens and basically say, since we're made in the image of God, therefore you are made for community. That is not what it means to be made in the image of God. We've got a big problem here. Isn't that interesting? We think about God the Father creating, but this says, let us make man and woman in our image. And so what it's whispering to there is that from the very foundations of the world, it's whispering what world there was this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who was in communion with himself. And when he chooses to create man and woman in his image, in his likeness, part of that likeness is to be in community much in the same way as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in communion. One God, three persons, great mystery, but they were in communion. They were in community. By the way, that's called reading into the text. That's called eisegesis. He's reading into the text that, oh, that means to be in community. Oh, boy. Before the foundations of the earth, they create us in, he creates us in, in his image, and we are to follow him in that. That's part of the image and likeness in us. Yeah, so if you're not in community, you're not being part of the image and likeness of God. That is not what Genesis 1 is teaching. It's written into the very fabric of our being. Says you, but not the biblical text. Or you go over to Acts chapter 2. And you see the earliest portrait of the Christian community. So the Christian community is seeking to follow Jesus, the way of Christ, and the discipleship model that he gave. And so the very first portrait that we have of that is in the book of Acts. And the first time we see community together in which new people are coming, on, coming in is in Acts chapter 2. So this is a familiar passage, but let me read it for you. You'll see it on the screen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. <clears throat> and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then what happened? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, that's the model. That's the model for what the church 
is to be. Yeah, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were not communitarians. Comes right here out of the book of Acts, and I would encourage for you uh, to take a time to study that a little bit more carefully here this week, Acts chapter 2 through chapter 6 or 7, and see how that very earliest Christian community was formed. It was this expectation that the church is way more than just Sunday morning. Please hear me clearly. No, I agree. The church is the body of Christ, and you can talk about when the church gathers on Sunday morning to hear the word, to receive the Lord's Supper, and things like that. Clearly now, the church is way more than a building, and it's way more than a worship service on Sunday morning. Now, I love our building. I am so grateful that I got to come into a place where I get to be a pastor here in a building like this. Holy smokes, am I lucky. (laughs) Oh, love our building. And we love our worship team. Our worship team pumps me up every Sunday to preach. I love our worship team. But Sundays is not enough. Sunday morning worship is not nearly enough for building a transformational community, as our mission statement would say. Building a transformational community, as their mission statement would say. How can an individual church have their own mission statement? I want you to think about that. We got a problem here. We want to build a transformational community by... Yeah, where in the Bible does it say to build transformational communities? Not familiar with that text. Growing in love with Christ and all people. And we've talked about that a number of times throughout this series, All In... We want to be all in for this, building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. In order to build a transformational community, we simply acknowledge that we can't merely live for the weekends. Mm. You ever heard that phrase, living for the weekends? Okay, there's almost a Christian version of that secular phrase, I'm living for Sunday. You know, I'll be a Christian on Sunday and I'll act a different way though the rest of the week. But a true transformational community is made up of people who are living for Christ Monday through Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, notice the emphasis on law, not gospel. They are living, not believing, living. Living is a verb of action. Believing, that's something different. It has to do with faith. We got a big problem here. They're, they're reading uh, communitarian ideology into the scripture uh, with a heavy emphasis on law. Oh, and by the way, their individual faith community, they can have their own unique vision and mission and values that other, you know, other faith communities don't necessarily need to have. But I mean, they, they value transformational communities, you know. And as important as Sunday morning is, Perhaps even more important is this kind of community as described here in Acts chapter 2 in which we see radical love, radical worship, a radical form of serving and sharing and generosity. And then as a result, God adding to their number daily those who are coming to know the living Christ. Actually, the uh, God added to their number through the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. It wasn't their radical love that grew the congregation. It was the preaching of Christ and him crucified and raised again that grew the congregation. 
Again, this is written into the very fabric of how we've been made. It's found in the earliest church community. It was found in Jesus himself and the way he operated with 12 and with an inner group of three closest friends that he spent a whole lot of time together with. And so why would we ever think that we could operate as Lone Ranger Christians? How could that even be possible, Kevin? That we would... What exactly does that mean? would believe that we could operate as Lone Ranger Christians. No, we, we know we can't. Transformation happens in the context of community. And so one of our four core values, as we've been marching through our mission statement and our core values and our vision statement... So you've been preaching through your mission and vision statements, really. That's bizarre. Absolutely crazy. Go nuts. Bizarre. What are you guys doing there? You're supposed to preach the word if you're a pastor. One of our core four values is community is far more than a meeting. It is the context for life change. Community is not a time that we gather together for an hour or two a week or every couple of weeks and we're devoted to the time. It's not a certain topic or a study out of the Bible. It's the context for life change. Yeah, again, do you have any biblical text for this, please, that don't require you to engage in eisegesis? As we are together. I know you, Kevin, have had transformational communities. You've been in those communities where you've experienced transformation. I have as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, as I was thinking through this message and where I've experienced that, I thought about a group that I was a part of back in uh, 2003, 2004. It was a pivotal, pivotal time in my life and uh, for a number of different reasons though, that I won't get into right now. But I was a relatively young Christian, and I got into a, a small group of guys that really didn't have much in common. Uh, a couple guys were working on their PhD up in Boulder, and other guys were uh, already graduated from college. They're engineers. Other guys were more working class, and uh, a couple guys were divorced. A couple of us were single, like I was at the time. One of them had um, had, had just gone through a divorce. There was uh, significant pain in that group, and and we gathered together with very little in common. Some working class, some middle class. And we had been meeting, doing a study on the Psalms. And uh, one day, there was another gentleman who was soon to join our group. And we were playing basketball together at a church gym. And he just kind of spilled his guts to a couple of the guys. And one of the guys, well, went over with him, fought from the church gym into the prayer room, and told him the, the answer to what he had just shared. Notice, now we're doing doctrine based on experience. And the hope, though, that we have within us, well, which is Christ Jesus and, and that man, after playing basketball, after the blood, sweat, and tears, he also found salvation through that basketball court. How about that? Mm. Blood, sweat, tears, and salvation from a basketball. Not football. Basketball. <laughs> football, too. <laughs> Maybe football as well. Sorry. I have a little bit of a hobby horse there. Um, but he came to know Christ. And then the guy wisely said to him, you know, it's not enough for you just to know Christ as Savior. You now need to have a small group community. And so here's one that you can join in. Adrian's in one. Go over to that group. And so you need a small group community. Let me ask a question here. What are the qualifications in the Bible for small group uh, community, transformational community leader? Answer, the Bible doesn't talk about small group leaders, does it? No, it talks about pastors. So we got a problem here and a big one. They're basically now imposing on their transformational community a model that's not in Scripture. And so the claim is, is it's important that you be in community. 
But here we go. We got a brand new baby Christian. And he needs to be discipled. Who's going to disciple him? Oh, his transformational small group community. Okay. Has his transformational small group community leader been to seminary? Is he ordained? Is he a pastor? What makes him qualified to disciple this man? And I have to ask because, you know, in many of these seeker-driven communitarian megachurches where the smallest unit is a transformational small group community, um, not an individual member, the only requirements to be a small group leader are that you are breathing. And I'm not joking. Or that maybe you attend a, a weekend, um, you know, a, a, a couple of Saturdays orientation for small group leaders. Do, do you think a, a two, three, four week orientation on how to be a small group leader is close to the equivalent of, you know, seminary? Yeah, we got a big problem here. Huge. He came in and joined our group, and I knew we were in a great small group when the very first Tuesday night that he came, he asked this question when we were studying the Psalms. Now, did David come before or after Jesus? And nobody laughed. Yeah, that's great. Who was the pastor leading the group? Nobody blinked an eye. Nobody said, what an elementary question. How silly. Nobody judged. Because all of us said, oh, we've been there as well. And we also all know that we had been in place in this group where we had big questions of our own. And some of us in that group had confessed challenges that we were facing against anger or challenges in our Confessed challenges? I thought people confessed sins. 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is this that he's talking about? Marriage or... um one guy was struggling with pornography, and he confessed that. and Confessed his sin of adultery? Mental adultery? Is that what you're saying? And every single one of the guys said, uh, okay, I'm going to listen to that, I'm going to hear that, I'm going to pray for you, and there is no judgmentalism in here. Ah, so there was no forgiveness. It was just there was no judgmentalism. Yeah, that doesn't sound anything like what the Bible describes at all, does it? Because me too. I've been there as well, they were all saying. And what we found in that group is because we were all committed to these two things, having a safe community and knowing more of Christ. Having a safe community. Where in the Bible are we taught to do that again exactly? Um, Yeah, this is weird. Because we were all committed to those two things, we experienced transformation. Oh, so if you're committed to those two things, you'll experience transformation. What do you mean by experience transformation? Can you point me to the biblical text that talk about this, please? There's no expectations here except that we all want to know a bit more of Christ and we all commit to being safe and confidential here. Commit to being safe, okay. And what we experienced was in the context of that, 
seekers turned into believers. Uh, scripture makes it clear that nobody seeks for God. Yeah, have you read Romans 3? No one, everyone, their throats are an open grave, their th- tongues practice deceit. There is no one who seeks for God, Scripture says. So who am I to believe, you or the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans? And you might be in a spot today where you're just a seeker or you're asking questions, by all means. Again, Scripture says no one seeks for God. The only seeker mentioned in Scripture is Jesus, the one who comes to seek and save the lost. We're so glad that you're here. We always want people who are simply asking questions about faith to be safe here. And then hopefully... Sounds like a therapy group. We all move a step toward Christ, toward believing, and then a step from that toward maturity and following Christ. Because this is the expectation that once we find a great church community... We will grow together. The community is far more than a meeting. It is the context for life change. That's what Oh, that sounds great and pious and all. Again, do you have a biblical text for this? They found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. That's what I certainly found. It's knowing Christ together. No, you're reading stuff into Acts, chapter 2. Together in community, not over the course of Sunday morning, but over the course of seven days a week, that I knew with that group of guys, I could go to them anytime. I could call them anytime, and they would be accountable, and they would encourage, and they would help, though they would pray. This is really the primary instrument for us, Kevin. Uh, life groups is what we call them. Life groups is the primary instrument. The, the... Yeah, which, by the way, doesn't appear until the 20th century. Life groups have never been a part of the, of the church until recent History. We program for community here. It's not the only instrument. Some people get community through different men's classes or women's classes or adult classes on Sunday morning. But the primary instrument that we program for is life groups. And I'm going to ask Kevin in just a moment to tell us a little bit about the core philosophy for our life group ministry here. Philosophy, yeah, not theology based on what the scriptures say. We have to go to philosophy now. But we have this big, hairy, audacious goal related to life group. A BHAG. Wow. Where does the Bible teach us to have that? <laughs> we currently have 39 life groups, and our goal is by the end of 2007, by the end of 2017, we would have 50, 60 life groups in our church, hmm. such that every adult here in both of these services and in our bilingual service and in overflow, every adult would have a safe, small group community where they are growing together. So that means 21 additional groups. We're starting three additional groups here this week. I'd encourage you, if you don't yet have a small group community, a life group, to go through these doors and to the right and over in the cube today, there is a life group Sunday where you can sign up for a couple short-term groups that are starting here in the next week. We have a third group that is specifically aimed at new Christians or those who are just asking questions about faith. All led by people who've never been to seminary and are not qualified to be pastors. But our vision is to saturate our church in life groups such that all of us, be it from South Kearney or North Kearney or from Axtell or Amherst or Minden or Gibbon. or Yeah, this is their vision, though, you know. God gave them a unique one for their community only. Wherever else God is bringing people from would have a safe, small group community that we are brought out of individualism and into community where we find life change. Yeah. And what you described, Adrian, is really what we want our groups to be about. And so just a healthy 
Life Group is a group that, which I think you experience, is that we are living out our identity that we find in Christ, and we... We're living out our identity. What does that mean exactly? What's the cash value of that statement? Begin to recognize that, we begin to understand that, and then we begin to be obedient to that. I thought, Adrian, what you shared last week in your message, and I was just struck by the power of that simple statement when you said that it's much better to live from acceptance than it is to live for acceptance. Right. Yeah, wow, that sounds profound, I'm sure. Do you have a biblical text for that? Right. Well, it's an identity thing. Yeah. You know, if you live from acceptance, you know that you have all you need in Christ. You live for acceptance, you're never going to have all you need in Christ. It's a freedom thing yeah. that we know we're free because we belong to Christ. Absolutely. We have all we need there. Yeah. It's all about a freedom thing, yeah. And it was just, to me, it was just so powerful. So powerful to, to know that when, if we live from acceptance that we are right, we're free to live. And we're free to live our identity. And this identity is that we are a family of missionary servants who are living as disciples to make disciples. I mean, that's really what we are as sons and daughters of Christ. And in, in that, our life groups are the context. These great communities, these small groups are the context where we begin to really flesh that out in our life. And so, again... Um, I'm convinced that when we begin to do that, Adrian, when we begin to live out this identity, that we are just going to want to be a part of a smaller group of people. Um, Yeah, where in the Scripture does it talk about dividing up into small groups? Apart from families, by the way. Families are natural small groups. um, That love me, that know me, that are not going to judge me. And we're just going to want to be able to do that. And they're just going to sprout up organically. You need to find your safe and happy spot, you know. Organically, and it's just going to be a pretty cool thing to watch. So let's look at these four identities very, very quickly. Just look at this first one of family. And let me just read to you this definition. That we are children of God who live and care for each other as a family. I mean, we know that to be true, right? This is what God desired. He desired a group of people that he would be able to have on this earth, that that people would be able to look at them and go, this is what I am like. And don't miss this statement that when we as the church, when we as our life group um, really embrace this idea of family, that this is my family, these are my brothers and sisters, then we will begin to, we will relate to each other differently and we will act towards each other differently and forgiveness will be quicker and we're going to love more deeply. I mean, this is just to me just an incredible, incredible thing. And our, and our groups will begin to meet uh, on a regular basis. We'll share meals together. We will meet our um, physical needs and our spiritual needs. So the transformational identity properties of a uh, transformational life group, which is not taught in Scripture, which is a modern teaching and modern ecclesiastical model. Uh, Apparently, it's going to make all the difference in the world and make it so that, you know, wow. I mean, it doesn't matter that your life group leader um, doesn't know any Greek, never studied Hebrew, never went to seminary, but, man, he's an upstanding guy, and he, he really means well, and you'll experience transformational life stuff, you know, because the people there, you know, you can have meals with them. Weird, huh? And to me, this just stands such in stark contrast to this culture of rugged individualism that's so prevalent in America today that, that we... Yeah, I agree. Rugged individualism is a serious problem. 
But the opposite error of an error is still an error. Um, are trained and taught that we are to be a self-made man or a self-made woman, and that's what's prized, and we know that God prizes community. We know that God prizes community, um, yet none of the passages you talked about actually mention that in context. You're reading it into these texts. The second one is missionary. That we are sent by God to restore all things to Himself. And, and Adrian's going, we're not going to tackle that this morning. Adrian's going to uh, flesh that out further next week with that core value of mission. And so the third one is servants, that we are servants of God who serve others as a way of life. I and mean, all we have to do is look at the life of Jesus. And what He began to do is He began to call um, people uh, to be His servants because that's what He came on this earth to do is to serve. And that's then what we are to do. We're to joyfully serve um, one another, doing, um, I love this, doing whatever, whenever, wherever, to whoever, right? And this identity stands in contrast to this culture of entitlement that we see um, in our country today. And, and this is so powerful to me that when a church of servants or a life group of servants um, understand this, and they're living this out, and they're being obedient to, that this can't help but stand out in our culture. It's going to. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, um, it's going to become a blessing to the people that are around us, that people that God puts around us and we're interacting with, and it's going to draw people to Christ. And then the last one is disciples, that we are disciples of Jesus who take responsibility for our own development and for the development of others. And- Take responsibility for our own development. That sounds like rugged individualism in the form of sanctification to me. And so again, this big idea is that individualism is the way of the culture, but community is the way of Christ. And our dream is that our life groups, our groups, our small groups, would be a place where people are loved as modeled by Jesus. It's a place where the gospel is shared continually and we're fluent with it. And it's not just for salvation, but it's all... Yeah, if you're fluent with the gospel, can you preach it for me? I'd like to hear if you actually are fluent in the gospel. Also for this ongoing transformation that happens in our life. And I believe that if we do that, then God and the Holy Spirit will take care of everything else. Yeah, we do, we do, we do. Notice the emphasis on law and gospel somehow is getting lost in all of this. And and then um, community is going to happen. Community happens, right. And lives are going to be transformed. Right, when community happens, lives are transformed because, you know, community is is good. You know, individualism, bad. Good things happen in community. Bad things happen in individualism. Actually, evil things can happen in both. We were doing our video announcements uh, for Overflow about a week and a half ago, and um, we're always trying to do, um, trying to get better in how we communicate to our students. And, and so we asked the question, what's one thing that you would like to see us do different as we do our announcements? And this is what um, one person said. They said that they want more Snapchat and less Instagram. Um, what does that mean? Huh? What is that? Anyone? Yeah. That's what I said. Right. Huh? Uh-huh. But you're younger than I am, so you should probably... Anyway, all right, let's move on. Sorry. 
But this is what I had to look this up. I mean, what, what do they mean by that? And this is what I found. Let me just read this to you. I like to use Snapchat to be more authentic and less produced. We have to look good on Instagram, but it's nice just to be real and in the moment on Snapchat. It's not always pretty, but it is me and it is real. And so Snapchat is this raw, unedited form of social media. While Instagram is also a form of social media, but on Instagram, it's where you take several pictures and you pick one that you feel like is the best. And then you begin to add different filters to it to make it look all shiny and and good. Why? Because we want to put our best foot forward there and we want to get as many likes as we can. This, to me, is the difference between what we describe as as just a meeting or just another Bible study and the difference between a life group. It's really this raw, unedited, it's letting a group of people know or see the real you and not just this Instagram version of you, right? It's dropping the facade that you have to have it all together. And you begin to live this, um, this truth, this raw truth of your life with someone, with a group of people. So it's all about being authentic in a transformational community. This is emergent postmodern speak. This is not biblical doctrine. That, that know you and that love you and is you experiencing your group that are just not going to judge you. I mean, believe me, I know um, that this is hard. I know that it takes time. I know that it can be intimidating, but I want you to know that it's also good. I mean, it wasn't... Um, it's something that... It took me a while to understand. And it wasn't until that I decided to become vulnerable with um, the group that God has put my wife in. In group therapy, right. Um, And I began to trust them and I began to understand that they would love me regardless of what I did and who I am. Um, That's when things began to change for me and for my wife and I. Because this is what I thought. I mean, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, I thought that I was the only one who sometimes um, questioned if God was real. I mean, when God was silent in my life with the, the death of our grandchild, I mean, I just would question, God, do you really love me? Do you really love our daughter? I mean, I thought I was the only one that who didn't always feel like reading my Bible or didn't always feel like praying. I mean, am I the only one that would drop the ball with my family? Am I the only one that would wake up in the morning, happy, excited about the day, and then would come home and I'd be angry, I'd be irritated. I don't have time to talk with my wife. I would snap at her. I mean, you ever feel that way? Sounds like you're describing the effects of sin. Anyone else, please? (laughs) You ain't alone. Thanks, man. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said this, and I thought this is so true, that the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like this. What? You two? I thought I was the only one. Hmm. And to me, to use a phrase of yours, if you don't mind... Okay. Anytime. Okay. This is the... I'll, I'll collect royalties later. <laughs> okay. 
Go ahead. Mark that. This is the secret sauce of a small group. Was when we begin to create environments where messed up people, like like you and I, mm-hmm. we're messed up. Maybe you more than me, but we're able to to look at each other and say, "You too." And right, and that's when the gospel, this message of grace, begins to take on this whole new perspective. And, and think, of- can you tell me more about that message of grace? Yeah, because God ha- has done something regarding our sin and our shortcomings. You know, something like Jesus dying for our sins. Think about this: whatever He has done to us, mm-hmm. He wants us to do through us to other people. Um, what? Um, we started, or I started this morning with Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And I want to wrap this up, my part up with this verse in, in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Because I believe what is said in that passage is why we're so passionate about community right. in the church. And so let's read that together. It's up on the screen. It says, I give you a new command that you are to love one another just as, and, and I would ask maybe that you would underline or circle that phrase in your Bible, but it's just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. And how has Christ loved us? Love is the distinguishing mark for a disciple of Jesus. And this uh, it's not just any old kind of love. It's the love that Christ gave us. How did Christ love us? This command is not new, but the newness of it, the deepening of it comes from this phrase, just as, right? It was when Jesus says, this is this new command. And what he meant was that I want you to love just as I have loved my disciples. And how has he loved his disciples? And we know that he went to the cross and he Right on. That's right. He went to the cross. Tell us more about that. He died for you and I. And so we, even if it means that we are to lay down our life with someone else, this is the kind of love that he wants. And if we do that, I believe strongly that this will begin to change. If we do that, boy, this is heavy law here. In the world. It's a good call. It's a good call, isn't it? Family, missionary, servant, disciple. You've heard just a little bit of the biblical witness on this. There's actually 60-some verses in the New Testament alone that speak to the one another's, how we're to relate to each other in community, each other's. It's deeply uh, significant in the New Testament that we relate to each other out of love. We see this philosophy for how we are operating in our life group ministries. Kevin's had the experience of powerful small group community. I have as well. Many of you have also. If that wasn't enough, let me just share a quick research study, and we'll come to conclusion well with this, a quick research study about how this has actually been proven to be a difference maker in people's lives. Uh, some of you know I'm a bit of a nerd. Yes. I enjoy research studies. And so I, I go to kind of the social science. What does it say about things that the Bible says? And sometimes social science just confirms what the Bible has already said. And it's interesting, five or six years ago, there was a, a large, large church outside of, outside of Chicago called Willow Creek Community Church that commissioned... Surprising that you're talking about Willow Creek. Um, ...a gigantic study of its ministries and its members. This is a church of 25,000 people, and they surveyed 6,000 of their own members and 200 other churches 
to ask the question, what ministries are effective for discipleship? And they anticipated, their hypothesis was that people would grow in discipleship as they did more and more church activities, kind of a buffet approach. You get more and more, you put it on your plate, and as you do more, you will grow more in Christ. And what they found was that was not the case at all. More oftentimes is not better. More oftentimes what they found was putting people on a treadmill to nowhere. Yeah, the Reveal Now study, I actually went to the conference, um, pretty much showed that the whole seeker-driven approach was a failure at quality. Oh, quantity it was able to draw large crowds. uh, Quality of discipleship, the whole seeker-driven approach failed. And what they found instead was, in addition to Sunday mornings as a time of inspiration and teaching and learning, in addition to that, there were two other areas of ministry that consistently helped people to grow in their transformative discipleship. Any guess what they might be? One of them was community. One of them was community that is found through trusted friendships. Uh, Exactly what does that mean? And the other one was finding an area of service where you're actually able to use your hands to make a difference with what Christ has given. We'll talk about that second one a bit next week, and we'll have a ministry expo here as well as we talk about uh, the core value of mission. But today, it suffices to say as we close... We deeply desire trusted friendships. It was absolutely critical for Christ. He could have walked with thousands, tried to be close with thousands. Instead, he chose to walk with thousands, but be close to 12. And so also must we. We have many, many, many acquaintances, but if we're to grow in Christ, we need a few trusted Christian friendships in the context of a small group community. And so I... I really pray for you, though, that you would find that perhaps even today. Individualism is the way of culture. Community is the way of Christ. Every single... Yeah, communitarianism is also the way of culture. It's the opposite false ideology of individualism. person here matters deeply. None of us has it all put together, but as we enter into community, we grow together. I'm going to ask Kevin to close here in prayer and then in just a moment where we're going to take communion. And uh, communion is a wonderful opportunity as well for us to celebrate the community that we have. Let's pray together. Done. Yeah, I think you get the point. Yeah, see, the opposite error of individualism is communitarianism. And notice he read stuff into the biblical text that is not there. And we really didn't get a biblical teaching at all regarding what Scripture teaches regarding so-called community because the way they framed it, what, they're, what they are talking about regarding community is not at all what the Scriptures teaches. So, yeah, this is communitarianism. And fascinating that they would quote Willow Creek, which, by the way, um, Bill Hybels was a disciple of Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker was an avowed, open communitarian. So what we're dealing with here is communitarian, also known as fascistic ideology. I'll put the link up to Resistance is Feudal. You'll be assimilated by the community, and I think it'll help you understand the um, categories that we're operating in here in this sermon. 
So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.